Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have a guest all the way from San Diego, California, Dr. Aslam. And I don't want to mangle your first name. So tell us how to pronounce your name appropriately. Saima Aslam. The Saima, I tell people, is like Simon, but with an A at the top, at the end. So that, that makes it easier. Terrific. So uh, Dr. Aslam is a professor of medicine in the uh, Division of Infectious Disease at University of California, San Diego. She's the director of the Transplant Infectious Disease Program at that institution, and she's done some groundbreaking work on bacteriophages, and we're going to learn a lot about that. But before we do that, tell us about your journey, how you got to transplant infectious disease, how you got to San Diego why you get to live in paradise while uh, we live in Maryland? <laughs> well, this is how life ends up, right? So no, I actually did my medical school in Pakistan, but I grew up sort of between Pakistan and different countries in the Middle East. And then I came to the U.S. to Baylor in Houston, where I trained as a resident, you know, intern, resident, fellow, junior faculty uh, for a couple of years as well. And while I was there, I got a K-23 award from the NIDDK. And I was in the first year of that when I got married to somebody who lived in San Diego. <laughs> and he was like, I am not moving to Houston. You need to move to San Diego. So, so we made it happen. I, I think having, you know, having 75% of salary paid for made it easier to make the move because there was no job opening at UCSD at the time. Mm-hmm. When I started, our transplant programs were sort of getting started around that time and our current sort of surgical and some of the medical directors all sort of started at that time. And so I, I started our transplant ID service then, and it's grown and our transplant program has grown a lot. And I, I love it, actually. It's just, it's amazing. We have a great camaraderie between the surgeons, the physicians and everybody. And remind me, uh, this hospital is the one where you're like a minute and a half away from La Jolla? Yeah, well, it, it is in La Jolla. So our main, <laughs> our main hospital is in La Jolla. But if you were to drive to the beach from the hospital, probably would be about 10 or 15 minute drive. Yes. Nice, nice. Yeah. And, uh, yet you still manage to uh, generate a ton of impactful work. How can you do that with the beach and the surf and everything that San Diego has to offer so close to you? Well, thank you very much. I think part of it, you know, we just have a great group of people. And what I loved actually about being here with Transplant was there was this sort of what I like to call a cowboy mindset, even though we're not in Texas, Mm -hmm. but very open to doing new and innovative things. So it was never a push to start doing hep C organs. We were one of the initial centers that started doing that in 2016, I think, sort of as a clinical protocol. And just, you know, just other things as well. So I think having that really supportive group was very helpful. And I feel like if we're doing cool stuff, then we should publish about it too. Um, and I have, you know, a great group of colleagues, both within Transplant ID uh, as well as just Transplant. And so a lot of these really have been group endeavors. And so I think having a good group helps you just get things done. Great. So I'm going to go back a little bit in time to your origin story. So you start at the Aga Khan School of Medicine. Is that the right name? It's called the Aga Khan University. And that is in uh, Karachi? Correct. 
And what inspires you to leave something that you must have been doing great work there and rocking it and on path to have a very uh, stable life as a respected clinician and you throw that away or put it aside and and try to bash your head against the wall to make it into the U.S. system. How does that happen? Well, um, so I think medical education within Pakistan is amazing. And I feel like a lot of IMGs, you know, whether from Pakistan or other countries, tend to have excellent clinical training. But a lot of us, you know, like the idea of coming here to learn really the research aspect of it. And in terms of postgraduate training, I feel like the postgrad uh, and, and things have changed in Pakistan, I mean, since I left, but postgrad education here in general is is better well is better defined and more suited towards moving into fellowships. And so for my medical school, I mean a number of people that taught me were people that had gone to medical school at AK at Al Khan or AKU, had come to the US, and a lot of them are, you know, really prestigious institutions and trained here and then went back. That was one of our ID professors and our current dean actually was a student at AKU and trained surgeon. And now he's back there leading the university. So it, it just, I think for a lot of us, I mean, it's a private institution. So there's a bit of a, I think, a selection process there. Um, but a lot of us have come to the U.S. and trained, you know, at, at different great places. A, a bunch of us have gone back and some of us have stayed on here. For me, my family didn't live in Pakistan, so it was sort of harder to live there. It's just different, I think, as a sort of single person at, at that time to have your own practice and do your own thing and not have your family in the same city, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, mine was in the Middle East at the time, and so it, sound, it felt like a good time to explore training here. And I, I always thought I would go back, and then it didn't happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so now you're in Houston and at, at Baylor, uh, one of the great programs in uh, the United States, and you started doing work on C. difficile. Yes, yes. So I was there as a resident and have always looked up to Dr. Dan Musher, who I worked with as an intern and resident and fellow. Um, and it was while I was working with him as a resident that we really got into C. diff. And that was before people knew that flagell or metronidazole is not a great drug for C. diff. So some of the initial papers that came out included uh, a study I had done with Dr. Musher in which we looked at our C. diff, you know, treatment response rates to metronidazole and found them to be very low. Mm -hmm. And I worked with him sort of in the lab learning how to do, you know, the cytotoxicity assay that no one does anymore. But at least, you know, at the time was the gold standard. So, yeah, I, I worked with him, sort of, we were involved in a couple of clinical trials. So I learned the process of how to set up a trial and how to go about enrolling patients, et cetera, um, in addition to lab work and then just sort of, you know, retrospective type studies that are doable, I think, in a finite amount of time during residency. Well, that work was uh, instrumental in probably the metronidazole lobby is going to come yes. after you. But that, that work was instrumental in demonstrating the inferiority of metronidazole. And it's been uh, cited hundreds of times and has, it has really been uh, an important advance in the literature. So then you moved to uh, San Diego because of personal issues, but you get you, you land in the epicenter of something very interesting. Tell us about that. So you're talking about phage, I think, right? Correct. Yes. So, 
you know, one, uh, as a transplant ID physician, and you know this, and I'm sure all our colleagues, there's a lot of multidrug resistance, you know, within our patient population, both pre-transplant and post and impacts outcomes. So I feel really fortunate to be here, you know, when Chip Schooley and Stephanie Strathby uh, treated our first patient here at UCSD. And so after that first one, it sort of opened up my eyes, like, you know, we should be doing this in transplant. And I will say for the first few patients I treated, there was a lot of hesitancy because there was this fear factor of, well, this is a transplant patient and do we really want to give them a virus? But the first patient I treated, um, was, which was our second at UCSD, was a lung transplant patient who pretty much had, you know, lived in the ICU for almost a year, just getting recurrent episodes of pseudomonas um, pneumonia, which over time became highly drug resistant. So when we treated that patient with bacteriophages, you know, having that support of already having treated a patient at the institution made it easier in terms of getting approvals. And I was, you know, able to browbeat people into, we can do this in transplant. <laughs> um, and, and the patient did well. And since then, we've actually now treated um, 19 patients here at UCSD with, for various indications. The majority of them are transplant patients. So kidney transplant with recurrent UTIs, you know, with drug-resistant ESBL, Klebsiella, or E. coli, and then the VAD patients and heart transplant, and certainly CF moving into lung transplant. We have a few non-transplant patients as well, including prosthetic joint infection, as well as a couple that came from outside San Diego to get treatment here. One was also for recurrent urinary tract infection, a prostatitis that did well, but came to us from Wyoming. Um, so he, he did great and working on writing it up right now with Baylor. And that's the other cool thing. I mean, I had worked at Baylor before and in ID, you obviously get to know the microbiology people as well, but Baylor also has a transplant or sorry, a phage therapy center, and they do a lot of the basic work. So I've been collaborating with them with, for some of my patients using their phage libraries and then they sort of made the clinical prep and then I treated the patient here. But it's kind of cool that it was with Baylor. So I, I enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get a chance to uh, solidify the relationship that you started and continued. Yes, yes. So we reconnected. Yeah. So I am completely uninitiated in the mechanics of phages. So Let's uh, imagine that I have a patient that I think would be appropriate for for phage therapy. So we'll start with who is that patient? Yes. So that is something we're learning. So currently, phage is not readily available. It certainly needs to undergo rigorous clinical trials, I think, before phages can be available for patient care more commonly in the U.S. So currently, we're treating patients on a single-use IND from the FDA, you know, what we call compassionate use. So in that compassionate use setting, patients that get treated either have really drug-resistant infections, so, you know, the highly MDR pseudomonas, or with COVID, we're seeing acinetobacter, bomini, and achromobacter, and or patients that have, you know, really tried and failed conventional therapy, usually several times and have either life or limb-threatening infection. And in those settings, we've had approvals from the FDA to proceed as well. The issue now, sort of this year, over this year in particular, I mean, so we started our first patient in 2017. Actually, 2016 was the first patient. And then from 2017 onwards, we've been much more active for phage. 
Um, the issue now is, I think, there certainly is a lot of interest because there is benefit for some patients in particular, but we don't have the availability to match the interest. And so just last month, we actually sort of cut down our criteria of who we would treat with phage, even though I think there's a much wider group that probably would benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't, you know, we just don't have the capacity currently to be able to treat everyone we think would benefit. Mm-hmm. So personally, for me, I think people that would benefit, and again, I'm talking from a transplant sort of slant, just because those are the patients I see, generally tend to be the the drug-resistant type infections, I, I, the ESBL, E. coli, and Klebsiella in our kidney transplant. In particular, you know, it's very common to have multiple recurrences and people end up living on ertapenem for a couple of years. So I, I feel like that's a great target. We have treated CF and lung transplant patients for MDR pseudomonas, but I think now in particular with CF and the new therapies, uh, I think infection over time will be going away as a big problem in that community. And certainly there are patients, uh, there are studies in CID and other, other journals showing the decline in MDR as well as infection rate in CF. But I think within that setting, Burkholderia infection is something I'm very interested in. It only affects a very small percentage, so less than 5% of CF patients. But, you know, the ones that are affected, many of them then at many centers will be turned down for lung transplant. And, you know, there are a few centers that will take them, but that's sort of not the norm. So I um, have a small sort of grant from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and I'm working with a colleague in Israel, Dr. Ronan Hazan. And with him, we've developed one sort of a clinical registry of BCC-infected lung transplant or CF patients. So within the U.S., Canada, Israel, and are happy to actually add other patients in other countries, but then sort of funnel their BCC isolates to Dr. Hazan's lab. And he's developed now a nice uh, phage library targeting that organism. So in general, Phages for Burkholderia that are common in the environment tend to be lysogenic, and so or they're as prophages, and so that's not suitable for treating patients. And the issue really was trying to develop lytic phages. So that's a project I've been working on really during the pandemic. That's that's when it started, and so we do have some no cost extensions <laughs> because mm-hmm. there was certainly a delay. But I feel like we're now at a point where we have a good library and we're interested in trying to use it, compassion use, but also sort of get funding to do at least a pilot clinical trial to see if these phages would work in this population. So I feel like that's an understudied area, but something of interest and I think of clinical impact. Um, And then really, there's just the VAD infections um, with Pseudomonas in particular that are difficult to treat. And again, patients are, you know, end up on long-term IV antibiotics. So far, my personal experience, as well as those that I've collaborated at other centers, has not really been that promising for Pseudomonas LVAD bacteremias. And we've writing a paper of three patients that had four courses of phage therapy and all, you know, all four of them failed treatment. So I think we still need to learn a lot of what within the patient and within phage characteristics and perhaps how we administer what characteristics are associated with good clinical outcomes. And so, and that I think will be different for different patient populations. But um, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of things that could be treated. 
-hmm. I don't think they will take over antibiotics because antibiotics are just, you know, in general work very well. It's just a subset in whom we don't have good options. Yeah, the small yeah. molecules are still, I think there'll be advances in uh, passive immunotherapy, advances in phages, advances in some other approaches, but the small molecules have proven themselves again and again to be so predictable. That, yes. Uh, so I've now identified this patient that I want to get phage, and I'm lucky enough to be in a place that has the machinery to get phage to a patient. So what's the next step? Do I call somebody in uh, RS or how does it work? So the key thing would be to save your patient's vector isolates within the micro lab. And currently within the U.S., I think, you know, we at iPad sort of act as a referral center, but there you know, several centers and many academic labs that work with phages. So at least if somebody would contact our group, we would identify the organism you have and who are the people that work with phages targeting that organism. So Pseudomonas phages in particular, you know, there's commercial companies actually working with phages as well as academic labs. So we would find out, you know, and again, nowadays, I feel like there's a big, uh, there's just so much interest that at least from the academic side, there's a lag of maybe six to 12 months of actually identifying the phage and developing it enough to actually treat your patient. But you would send your bacterial isolate to a lab that then will run their phages uh, against your bacterial isolate to see which of those phages are active against the bacteria. So, you know, which ones would be susceptible. Usually, so so that, that's step one. And if we find, say, two or three different phages that kill your patient's bacteria, they then... And, and now this is sort of usually done already. They need to have been, you know, sequenced, fully sequenced, so we know the phages don't carry any lysogenic elements, and that they don't carry any AMR resistance genes. And once you know that these phages would be appropriate to treat, and we don't do this at UCSD, but a few other centers do, in which they would then grow that up and basically develop clinical-grade preparations, which would mean high high concentration. So usually we treat with 10 to the ninth plaque forming units per mil. And then, you know, develop enough volume and then you get rid of endotoxin, which may be present because the phage is grown within the bacteria. That's how you would propagate it. And then you clean it out through various dialysis mechanisms within the lab. So the final product, then we check for sterility. Um, and then once we have that information, you submit a packet for an EIND to the FDA, sort of going over the details of the phage, but also the patient's clinical scenario, making the case that this would be appropriate for compassionate use. And that process, and sometimes for some organisms, you can't find phages. And so if you do a de novo phage hunt and start collecting wastewater from different places, you know, running them on agar plates, that can take many months to find phage. So, so I think I mean, so, but that's what the process would be. You would save the bacteria, send it to a lab that has phage or willing to find phage, and then grow it and treat your patient. So, yeah, I'll, I'll stop here. Yeah. You mentioned the term lysogenic, which I have not heard since maybe uh, second year of college. What does that mean for uh, an infectious disease doctor using phage? So generally, when we use phages for treatment, what we're aiming to use are lytic phages, right? So when you have a phage that goes into bacterial cell, if it's lysogenic, it will incorporate within the genome and keep mm -hmm. multiplying over time, but it's not going to kill the bacterial host. Mm 
So the goal is to use phages that are lytic so that when they go in and multiply, they kill the bacteria and move on to the next replication cycle. So, you know, exponentially increasing within the patient or within the patient's bacteria and killing Mm -hmm. the bacteria along the way. Got it. Well, thank you for uh, bringing me back and and some of the listeners to uh, Campbell's biology, uh, second year of college or maybe even first year. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. So in in terms of uh, treatment, is it part of combination therapy with antimicrobials, with antibacterials, or is this done solo? So the majority of cases that have been published and the majority of the ones we've treated with active infection has been in combination with phage, uh, with antibiotics. And there's now a lot of literature um, looking at phage antibiotic synergy. So done prior to actually treating the patient so we can choose the best antibiotic that would synergize with the phage. And now most places will do that as part of workup or development of the phage treatment for a patient. And, and that's been done sort of traditionally in the U.S. at least, because when we started treating patients with active infections, the FDA did not find it appropriate for us to withhold standard of care and give an experimental agent. That being said, I've now treated actually a couple of patients with phage alone, and but I treated them, and these were both sort of recurrent UTI patients with ESVL infections. I treated them at a time when they were not symptomatic. So, you know, we couldn't say we're withholding standard of care and just treated them with phage, targeting really that colonization. And both of those patients have done really well <laughs> and have been off antibiotics. So I feel like there, there are different ways of thinking of how we can use phage based on a pa- either a patient population or a certain disease state that you're targeting. And phage alone has been used in Eastern Europe in particular um, for CF patients nebulized. And there, there are preparations you can take by mouth for various indications as well. And that's not with antibiotics. But the experience within the U.S. has mostly been intravenous and has and that has been in combination with antibiotics. But I, I think we can move away from that in the future. So how do you, which brings me to the next question, how do you even begin to tackle the issues of PK with phages. Uh, you've talked about some of the PD parts of phages, but how about PK? So we are, for each patient we treat, and again, it's different in compassion use cases. Some patients treat at other centers don't have funding to get serial blood samples, for example, over time. For patients that we treat uh, locally at UCSD, when we inject phage, we actually do get serial blood samples to try and develop PK curves. And I feel like we've been doing that pretty consistently over the last couple of years. And what we found is that those numbers or distribution of phage is very dependent on the phage that we use. And so, for example, a recent patient that we treated was treated with three different phages. And we found that for one phage, their half-life was like 0.4 hours. Before another phage, it was 0.8 hours. So... The studies that will be done and have started enrolling clinical trials will definitely be looking at this sort of more systematically so we can understand that better. But certainly the data I have so far really kind of per patient, but I think using the same phage for a number of patients with the same infection will give us more reproducible data. Great. Well, this is fantastic information on the the science and the art of uh, phages. Uh, In terms of 
organisms I've seen that it's been used, and you described use in regular old bacteria, seen mycobacteria. Yes. Uh, are there other life forms that it's active against? Nocardia, fungi? So um, as far as I know, at least clinically, no. But I think there is research certainly going, you know, looking into that. In particular, there's a lot of research uh, in, you know, by certain, at certain, certain centers in the UK looking at phages against C. diff mm-hmm. and also phages against Lyme disease or Borrelia. But I'm not aware of any work on fungus or nocardium. Yeah, I'm not even sure that that. Uh, I, I mean, there wouldn't be bacteriophages, you know, for fungus, yeah. but I'm sure they have their own viruses that kill them. But I, I don't know much about them. Yeah, yeah, just just neither do I, obviously. So shifting gears a little bit, you are um, a. I hate to say very unique because once it's unique, it can't be very. But you're very unique in in that that you're young and yet have achieved so much, have NIH funding, are in the field of transplant infectious disease, and in a a position to guide younger people coming through. What are some of the things that lessons that it's it's kind of hard to talk to somebody who's fairly young saying, what are your the life lessons that you'd like to impart? Yet you've done so much. So what are some of the less professional lessons that you'd like to impart to younger listeners? Well, first, thank you very much. That that was very kind of you. In terms of life lessons, I mean, part of it, I think, I mean, to be honest, there's some things in life that worked out really well, but were somewhat random. But I think being open to that randomness and saying, mm-hmm. okay, well, this is a cool opportunity and why not? I mean, Phage was one of them. If I wasn't here, I probably wouldn't be that into it or wouldn't have had the experiences I've had. So I think being open to new opportunities and not being closed off to, well, this is my track for life and I've already planned the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally for me, yeah, I, so I think, you know, willing to branch out is one thing. I don't know about life lessons, to be honest. I mean, I feel like having, you know, being having collegial relationships with our colleagues is helpful and learning, you know, one one mentor will not teach you everything, mm-hmm. but being open to learning perhaps, you know, the art of medicine um, from some somebody, um, you know, how to write a good paper or how do I submit a grant? And for me, a lot of that has come from different people. Mm-hmm. It's not been this one person that helped with everything. And and I think that's probably true for most of us. And so, I mean, Dr. Dan Musher at Baylor, and then I worked with Dr. Robbie Darwish, who was amazing, also at Baylor. And he was my mentor for my K-23. And just, again, different people along the way. And I think um, not putting all your eggs in one basket <laughs> is, is one of them. For me, I love clinical work and I, I love seeing patients. And so whatever I've done research or publication wise has always been very patient oriented. So I think find what you love and stick with it. And stick with it. Yes. And a- any uh, uh, advice for uh, people uh, that trained elsewhere, foreign medical graduates in terms of how to uh, navigate the system? What would you like the system to do better? What is it already doing well? I think since I've been in the U.S. and I've been here now 20 years, one, I think the system has changed quite a bit. And so for the really fresh graduates, I probably would not be very helpful. 
But I think the key for international medical graduates is getting some degree of U.S. experience, uh, if possible, prior to applying for residency. And a lot of people either will come here on a sub-internship, for example, or do research electives, which are really helpful. I mean, one, to learn the system so that when you're applying for or when you're interviewing for residency, you know, the person interviewing you knows that you can work in the system here and this is not going to be brand new when they come. I think that's really the key. I mean, most people that come all tend to be great. And that's true, you know, physicians here as well. So it's not that they don't, they don't know medicine. They usually know it really well. The difference really just is the exposure. So language is one, but just how the medical system works, working within EMR, et cetera. But having experience here usually counts for a lot when you mm-hmm. submit applications. And how about any uh, advice for uh, young women that are entering the field as to uh, how to uh, deal with the uh, challenges that, I mean, you've never been a man, so you probably don't know the challenges of men, but the challenges that are unique to women in academic medicine? There are many challenges, for sure. I, I think the key is is not to give up. And I'm saying that as somebody that did think of giving up several times at different junctions, but I had people that basically said, you enjoy this, so why let somebody else take away your joy? Mm-hmm. And so I have stuck with it, and I think that's sort of the key thing. And, you know, trying to find allies that will help you. And at times that may involve changing a, your track a little bit or learning how to define yourself in a way that that work always remains yours or some something similar to that. But not giving up, I feel like, is the biggest. Well, those are great ways to uh, end this interview. Anything else that you think that our listeners would be interested in learning about before we uh, say goodbye? (laughs) No, I I don't. I feel like COVID was hard. It was hard on me. It was hard on, you know, most people that I know. But I think we've learned things from the pandemic in terms of taking care of ourselves. And I feel like all of us you know, should try and or hopefully be in a place where we're allowed to take care of ourselves. And and that, that would be key for you then to do better in, you know, in academics or private practice or whatever it is that, that people want to do. That's great advice. And we often forget that because we are so focused on uh, the task at hand and the tremendous need that is out there. And, and I think all of us have this desire to just jump in the breach and do something. And we do have to remember to take care of ourselves and that that isn't necessarily taking the cushy option, that that is a reality. Yes, I've started taking a lot of time off now and have out of office messages on email. But but that's new, right? That That's just new over the past year. But but I think it's helpful for sanity. And that, that's we should all do it, regardless of being junior or senior in the academic ladder. Yeah, I remember years ago, I used to work at the NIH on Wednesdays, and there was not good cell service in the clinical center building. And I told one of my patients, I said, you can call me, here's my cell phone, call me anytime, just not on Wednesday. And she goes, oh, I understand, you're golfing. I said, well, actually. Yeah, exactly, right? It's like, yes, I've had patients say that. It's like, well, I'm not, you know, I'll next week it's somebody else on service and it won't be me. And it's like, oh, you have time off. And it's like, well, no, <laughs> we're, we're doing other things. But that that's life uh, of life. medicine, basically. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. And we look forward to having you again with us down the road and to learn more about the very exciting things that you're doing. Take care. Take care.